This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Copla Connections, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Silvers. This is episode 29 and our film this week is the 1990 comedy rock musical Rockula. For those of you who are new to the podcast, what we do here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time or are they just a bunch of hacks living off of nepotism. To help me each week, I invite on a guest, find out their Coppola credentials and we kind of chew the fat over the film in question. As I mentioned, this film is Rockula and my guest Scott Murphy from the New Horror Express podcast. We get all into this rocky uh, melange of a canon film. It's a, it's a lot of fun. This film is currently on YouTube for free. All you got to do is type in Rockula 1990 and you'll be able to find that bad boy. Not that I condone seeing a film without uh, buying it or renting it. I think in the US you can get this on a Scream Factory release, which is something we get into in this conversation. So I guess all that's left to do is to drink some blood donated by the Red Cross, try and start a rock, hip-hop, whatever band, and try and see if we can break the ancient curse as we make some Coppola Connections! week we're getting spooky and rocking as we take a look at the 1990 luca bravici directed horror comedy musical rockula starring dean cameron tawny ellis thomas dolby and tony bliss this oddity was written with by luca alongside jeffrey levy and chris ver while i think 
<laughs> and cinematography by today's Coppola Connection, our boy John Schwartzman with his second ever film. Joining me to see if we're cursed by this film to live a 22-year loop of pain or if we can defeat a hand-bone-wielding, rhinestone-peg-legged pirate is podcaster and music reviewer Scott Murphy. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fine Saturday morning here in Wellington. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And a, and a, and a, a pumping, rocking Friday night here in, in sunny, in, well, in rainy England. So uh, I guess, I don't know, our moods will be slightly different. I've currently got a beer in hand. Uh, I imagine you've probably got like a, a cup of tea or coffee beside you, Scott. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've just I've just got some I've just got a bottle of water at the moment. But um yeah, that's <laughs> nice. So yeah, as this podcast progresses, I will probably get more wild. It seems quite fitting, seeing as the film we're talking about is a is a is a very wild ride itself, right? Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> So before we get into talking about Rockular, obviously you're yeah you host a horror podcast, New Horror Express. Tell us a little bit about it, Scott. Okay, so uh, New Horror Express is basically I interview um, horror movie directors, writers, actors, novelists, um, like all kind of indie horror kind of people. And um, yeah, we just uh, talk about like whatever their their latest project is, but also like just their thoughts on horror, how they got into horror, their greatest horror influences. And um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, since I've moved to New Zealand from Edinburgh to New Zealand, the schedule has got a bit wacky, but generally it is <laughs> fortnightly. Um, I'm hoping to get back to a fortnightly schedule. And um, also once a month, uh, we have a, a spin-off series called The Guilty Pleasures Podcast, where I look at uh, 21st century guilty pleasure horror movies. Perfect. I imagine uh, one of Luca Bertovici's earlier films might be a guilty pleasure horror film, right? In his 1980 Ghoulies. Yes. But, <laughs> however, um, probably won't cover it because it is like... Uh, I made the podcast so it was focusing on on new horror or horror of the new millennium. So it is only I can only cover movies post two thousand. Oh. So I cannot I cannot cover some you know so good as bands it's classics um, like Troll Two or like um, you know Mr. Bervici's Ghoulies. You know so I can't <laughs> I can't cover films like that because um, oh. they they predate my mandate. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that Ghoulies has had enough enough screen time on so bad it's good podcasts up and it, down the land. It it has. It has <laughs> Joe Dante's least favorite film. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I imagine because it's very much uh, r r riffing upon one of his greatest works. Yeah. Oh, he's quite funny about it. I saw a horror documentary where he was quite funny about it, where he's kind of ripping into it of being like, you know, of all the kind of Gremlins ripoffs, you know, Critters was his favourite and Ghoulies was his least favourite. But then he was like, yeah, who am I to talk? I made Piranha. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, that's, that's perfect. Um, so, yeah, before, again, again, before we, before we get too deep down the rabbit hole of 
Mr. Berdovici's film, uh, Rockula. Let's figure out a bit about your Coppola credentials. And I always ask, um, when did you first become aware of the Coppola family? And I always like to frame it as like, as this entity, was there, what was the entry point to, was there a family member? But when did you realize that they were, they were more than just Francis or Nicolas Cage or whoever was your entry point? I think Francis was probably my entry point. I, um, cause I was thinking about this. I was thinking, did I see the Godfather first or Rocky first? And I'm pretty sure, um, I saw the Godfather first. Uh, so yeah, I think I saw the Godfather when I was like 13, 14, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and then it would have been a few years after that. I mean, like when I started like reading the likes of empire, probably around kind of 15, 16 that I was, uh, became more aware of them as a family. But even at that stage, um, like this is kind of late 90s, early 2000s, I'd probably only really be aware of the fact that there's like four of them. There's like Francis Ford, Talia Shire, Sophia, and Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. And, oh, like, because, you know, most of the rest of them, I wasn't that aware of. In fact, it was only really listening to this podcast that I was like, oh, yeah, Jason Schwartzman is like, it's like Talia Shire's son. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, uh, kind of noticing more of the, more of the connections uh, really that way. So for, I think for a lot of years, it was just, I, I knew that there was four of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like, I'm kind of, fascinated like people I speak to and it, it, it definitely validates me when people are like I didn't realize how wide spreading they were until I found out about this podcast or people have like said that to me online and I'm like oh maybe I am doing something good I just thought I was on like a a fool's errand do you know what I mean like a kind of a, a fool's endeavor to do this and like maybe I'm just like telling people stuff they already know and then people have gone I I I don't know, I post the next film is going to be this, and people are like, how? How is that related to the Coppola family? And then I say it, and they go, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, like, I was, you know, obviously I'm a big Wes Anderson fan as well, so I was kind of aware of Roman as well. But, yeah, um, yeah no, like, not, I mean... Yeah, it was really listening to this that I was like, oh, there really is tons of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're everywhere. There's like a whole branch of the family as well that um, I, I'm yet to cover because obviously nobody has said like, oh, I'll talk about that member of the family because there's like people who, I guess, for whatever reason, people have not heard of them. I'm, not, I'm, I'm yet to speak of the quality of their the films they've been in, but there's a lot of like, there's like a straight to vod branch of the family let's say like okay <laughs> uh, yeah it seems to be like the next generation the generation below nick and uh yeah i guess yeah the the the, the new generation he, like nick's son okay. i know he's like cropped up in a lot of stuff that's gone straight to vod and stuff like that okay. and the other Are, other they, s- cousins okay. and stuff like that um so have you Are they ever... like the frank stallones of the family yeah 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 yeah. without all the nepotism obviously frank stallone <laughs> was kind of like <laughs> just still put into rocky right any any opportunity sly was like 
hey Frank, you got a song? Get it, get it, get it in my movie. <laughs> so I always like to ask my guests: Have you have you ever met a Coppola, Scott? Uh, you'd probably be surprised to learn that I have not met a Coppola. I've not. Yeah, no. Ah, oh, well, um, you never know. You never know. That's why I always ask. <laughs> I always ask, like, because you, you never know. People might have a wild story. That people have got these wild yeah. stories out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wish I could come out, you know, come up with a story of like I bumped into them once, or I was at, or even if I was at like a film screening with 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 one of them or whatever. But yeah, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I do not have a story like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to the next question, which is, what would have been the first John Schwartzman film you would have seen? What would have been the first John Schwartzman movie I would have seen? Well, I had a like look, little look at his like IMDb, and um, I, yeah, I've definitely seen more John Schwartzman movies than I thought I had. Um, but uh, I'm I'm going to guess it was Armageddon, uh, oh. probably. What a what, what uh, a gem! Probably be my first my because <laughs> I remember it, weirdly, um, even though I'm not a particularly big uh, Michael Bay fan, mm-hmm. and um, I remember going to the cinema to see that on like my birthday when it came out. Okay, that, that, that like, I, I said it on the episode when I covered that film. Like, I should hate it. Like, do you know what I mean? It's doing all this stuff where I'm like, it's flag waving. It's really like jingoistic. It's manipulative. Like, it is this whole yeah. thing of like, America saves the world and stuff like that. But I just can't help but fall for it every time. Just kind of like, for a film that is two and a half hours, it just fucking barrels along and just like pummels you with kind of like scene after scene. And like, by the time it gets to like the emotional climax, like I- I'm always like, like a sniveling mess. <laughs> I think it is. It's one of those weird ones where like, um, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the actors in it, I think. Because like there's a real um there's a real smugness and a real kind of mean spiritedness to a lot of Michael Bay's work mm-hmm. kind of in the uh, in the two thousands going forward. However, like his his kind of nineties movies like like The Rock and Bad Boys and Armageddon are like have like a a more light touch, I think. Yeah. Or just have more charming cast. Um, which I, I, I think helps them kind of uh, kind of mosey along, yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I just think there is there is that try and like you know, uh, you know, obviously Bruce Willis is super charming in that movie, mm-hmm. and I think that really works it's just to its favor. You know, Bruce Willis tends to sleepwalk through movies now, but um, yeah, back in the nineties, he was still bringing it. And there's also like kind of cool, like same kind of side characters, you know, Steve Buscemi's like dickhead character and <laughs> Peter Strohmeyer's like crazy character. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of a fun watch. Although it does have one of the worst on-screen romances. I mean, like the Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler picnic <laughs> scene is one of the all-time terrible romance <laughs> scenes. It's up there with the picnic scene all in episode two uh, Star Wars Episode Two. That is, as, <laughs> it's just one of the cringiest 
romance scenes <laughs> ever felt put on camera. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't get me started on Ben Affleck in that film. I, I, I'll end up talking about his teeth again. And I don't think anyone wants to hear me talk about that. Uh, just Google it. If you want to just type in Armageddon, Ben Affleck teeth. If you want to know what that's about guys. Uh, so, um, yeah. Oh, the, the, I'll, I'll share this fact about Armageddon. I own that film on three different yeah i own three different dvds and one of them <laughs> is uh a french criterion dvd like uh box set thing like it's a double disc criterion dvd set of uh of armageddon just because i found it fascinating that armageddon is a part of the criterion collection well that and <laughs> the rock the fact that yeah, yeah the fact that michael bay has got two films in the Criterion collection. Absolutely Smart, blew my mind. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to that point you made as well about like Michael Bay almost being not him being charming, but his films being like quite charming in the nineties. I'm not sure if that's something to do with the fact that Jerry Brookheimer, they're but they're all like Jerry Brookheimer films, and they kind of like they all feel like of a mold almost do yeah. you know what i mean they kind of have like the don simpson jerry brookheimer stable of films like yeah, even when you look at like the rock and con air they like yeah. the the directors feel like directors for hire almost like i think armageddon is i don't know pushing a bit further to being a film de michael bay as it were do you know what i mean and then it's kind of after the after yeah after the new millennium it's like michael bay just goes off the fucking chain and then before you know it he's yeah. i don't know yeah he's, he's he's doing upskirt shots in a family movie about yeah i know it's horrible it, yeah. it's great it's great it's, it's really kind of horrible stuff and like i know like um this might be controversial amongst action fans uh, because a lot of people love bad boys too but i hate bad boys too and the reason <laughs> i hate bad boys too is exactly that thing of like those films like the rock and armageddon and stuff are quite light-hearted and kind of sprint along bad boys 2 is a movie that is occasionally light and um light-hearted and kind of light on its feet and stuff like that and it's like hey we're being like a goofy action movie and then occasionally it's like somebody's like getting chopped up in a barrel and the movie thinks it's fucking traffic and it's so fucking annoying <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I, I don't want to rant too much about Bad Boys 2 and my hatred of Bad Boys 2. Yeah, let's not let's not get too deep down a rabbit hole of talking about Michael Bay. This is a this is a Coppola podcast after all. Um so let's, Absolutely. Let's talk about Rockula. But before we do, here's the trailer. Die. Misunderstood. What do you do? I'm a vampire. <laughs> Have you ever seen one of these before? 18th century, right? And he hasn't scored in 400 years. Man, that dude so got blue. He just met the perfect girl. And lost her for the 14th lifetime in a row. Just forget the fact that we are the oldest living virgins walking the planet. But all that is about to change. 
You always die on Halloween night of your 22nd year. Because if the devil sold his soul, he still couldn't rock and roll. I don't think I'm a vampire. I really am a vampire. Like Rockula. Tonight's the night to keep a date with fate. I think maybe you just need some therapy, Ralph. And it's their one last chance. I love you. You love me. If you don't listen to me, you're going to die. For romance. I thought he was kind of cute. I'm back! Yo, yo, check this out. Check this out. Check this out. Rockula. The love story that rocks like a bat out of hell. Rockula. Does anybody go bowling anymore? So before before we before we talk about this film, I would like to ask my guest Scott to provide a synopsis for the film. Can you tell us what the hell Rockula is about? Uh, yes, I can tell us what, 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 what Rockula is about. It's somewhat convoluted, so I decided to take notes. Um, so, <laughs> so Rockula is about a vampire called Ralph. He is a many centuries old vampire. We don't know how old he is. IMDb says he's 400 years old, but that is wrong because he met his true love, Mona, 400 years ago, so he must be older than 400. Um, <laughs> his true love, Mona is murdered 400 years ago by a pirate with a rhinestone peg leg with a ham bone. <laughs> and then she is, uh, she is reincarnated every 22 years, uh, only to be killed in the exact same fashion every 22 years on Halloween's night. Um, we are now in the late 80s. And we are part of the cycle again where, like, Ralph is just about to meet Mona and he doesn't want to meet Mona. Uh, Ralph is uh, something of a kind of basement-dwelling, uh, you know, boy living with his mum. And um, that's kind of... And he just practices piano and stuff, and that's how he gets on with his days. And he's kind of fed up of the legacy now and doesn't really want to do it, but he decides to do it anyway um, because he is, according to his reflection, he's a vampire with a reflection, um, uh, he's the world's, <coughs> the world's oldest living virgin, which, as we know from all 80s and 90s comedies, is the greatest tragedy to fall any straight white man. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then, yeah, he meets Mona, uh, and the cycle continues. Um, it, 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 the film cannot decide whether this is the last cycle or not. Uh, at one point, it is thrown up that this may be the last time he can possibly save her, and Mona dies forever. But then the movie contradicts that, because at another point, um, he says to Mona that we'll do this all again in 22 years. So I'm not quite sure if that is a proper plot point or not, or they're just throwing that out there. And um, I think we can kind of tell uh, where this story goes, whether it has a happy ending or not. It's a comedy. Um, so, you know, and it's also a musical. It is a musical uh, that stars several musicians, including uh, the English electronic musician Thomas Dolby 
and one of the founders of rock and roll, Bo Diddley, which I'm sure we will discuss at length much more. <laughs> that was a perfect synopsis uh, for this film. It's it's bizarre. So what what were your first impressions? Why did, first of all, no no, scrap that. Why did you pick this film, Scott? I picked this film for very specific reasons. Um, because one, I really like vampire films. Uh, two, I have a soft spot for horror musicals, a la Little Shop of Horrors, Rocky Horror Picture Show, stuff like that. And three, it was um, made by Canon Films. And <laughs> I also have a soft spot uh, for, for Canon and I've you know, seen the documentary and I've seen a whole load of Canon films. So I was surprised that I had uh, not heard of this film at all, given those factors. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is a vampire film I've not seen. It's a canon film I've not seen. I'll, I'll check this out. I saw the trailer. It looked fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's, something, there's something about the film that I find fascinating. And like, especially when you, <laughs> when, when you look into it, it was, it was shelved, right? So it was completed in 1988. And then Correct. at the time, New World and Canon filing for bankruptcy uh so they kind of had had these films that are in limbo and kind of two of the ones that are noted on the wikipedia page for this is um warlock and rockula were like two of the ones and warlock obviously spawned several sequels and went on to be like a kind of commercial hit or yeah at least a commercial hit on video rentals and on 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 video sales and then rock killer was just widely ignored when it finally got a release in 1990 so i just find that i find that fascinating like is, is it talked about much yeah. in the in the canon documentary or is this one kind of left to the cliff notes nah it's kind of skipped over it is i like they, they they don't no, no, I, I don't remember it being extensively talked about. I mean, the, the main things they talk about is like the chuck piles, um, which is like there's there was this thing called the chuck piles where uh, scripts were brought into canon and they were put into one of the two chuck piles, which was either Charles Bronson or Chuck Norris. Um, <laughs> so they talk about that a lot of because they're known for kind of making those films like Charles Bronson and Chuck Norris. Um, and, um, you know, they talk about kind of some of the wacky horror films they make, um, like the kind of toe pooper films that they produce, like, um, Life Force and Invaders from Mars and, and, and stuff like that. And then they talk about some of the kind of weird kind of like really artistic films, uh, that Canon made, like, mm -hmm. um, the like, Canon produced, um, John Luke Goddard's King Lear, which stars Norman <laughs> Mailer. I've never seen it, but I'm aware of it. Um, and so, yeah, uh, and then so, some other ones, like uh, there's a great action movie they produced um, called Runaway Train, uh, mm -hmm. which stars Eric Roberts and, and John Voight uh, and, and a young Danny Trejo uh, in, in a small role. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they, they cover a lot of ground in that documentary, but Rock Hill is not really one that I remember them talking about much. It, yeah, it, I, I can, I can kind of, I can kind of see why. But yeah, what were your, what were your first impressions of this film when you watched it? Um, I suppose my first impression, like, it's interesting because um, I ended up 
uh, watching it twice. Um, and once I, I took notes and, and one time I, I just kind of watched it straight up because it's, I, which is kind of interesting in itself because you kind of watch things differently when you're taking notes for a podcast and then, and then just watching something. And I suppose like my first impression was like, it was slightly disappointing, like in the fact that watching the trailer and reading the synopsis and, you, you know, you're kind of prepared for all this wackiness and all this wackiness does happen, but in a slightly more dull style than you, you would imagine, you know, you, you know, just telling somebody beat for beat um, about this film, explaining the plot of this film, it sounds like a totally mad, wacky uh, experience. Like, uh, you know, I, I, again, talking about another canon film, like Life's Life Force. If you watch Tobuber's Life Force and I explain to you what Tobuber's Life Force is about, it sounds wacky as shit. And you watch it and it does not disappoint. <laughs> but if you explain to somebody this movie, they'd be like prepared for like a really off the chain weird movie. And then it's not as kind of wacky and insane as you think it is. If they, if that makes any sense. Yeah, or as wacky and in, as insane as I imagine, like everybody making it thought it was like because you can kind of tell from like the the way yes. people are, are acting in it that they're, they're very big like you've got thomas dolby and like there's it's very broad and like it's trying to go for for comedy all the time and I, I don't know if a lot of it like works and that's not even like looking at it through 2022 eyes or whatever looking at it from yeah like a modern perspective i'm like there's a lot of films from the same period like comedically that that hold up do you know what i mean like films you've mentioned like rocky horror picture show holds up uh little shop mm. of horrors holds up this kind of i don't know it it doesn't hold up because it feels like it didn't have much to begin with i think so i I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of... Um, I, I actually think that Thomas Dolby is probably one of the best things uh -huh. in the movie. But um, I think there is a lot of kind of forced wackiness. Yeah. You can kind of tell what they're going for. I, I feel like, you know, if, you know, Ghoulies is obviously a, a ripoff of Gremlins, but like, you can kind of tell that there are influences in that there was quite a few kind of wacky vampire movies coming out around this time you know you've got i mean this was supposed to be released in 1988 and if it had been released it would have been kind of at the height of that kind of campy vampire kind of mm -hmm. run of like um you know you've got like fright night and vamp uh, with grace jones which I, I haven't actually seen but i'm aware of and and of course lost boys which came out the year before in 87 and so you've got them that have come out in a kind of three, three or four year period beforehand. And so they've obviously kind of taken that template and they were like, oh, you know, if we can do this and, and be campy like that and, and, and wacky like that. And so, yeah, it does feel quite awkward and forced a lot of the time of like, look at how wacky we are. Mm -hmm. Ah, this, you know, and it's like, yeah, I, I guess so. You know, but, mm. <laughs> but, but before we get into like talking about specific scenes in this film how do you think it kind of fares in the way of like 
incorporating vampire lore within the film itself. They, it's a weird film in terms of vampire lore. Now, I mean, vampire lore itself is weird in that, you know, there's no kind of consistency in a lot of things. Like, even, you know, some basic tenets, like uh, vampires can't go out in the sun. They, not every film has that. There's even, like, you know, this is a Coppola podcast, there's even, in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, um, like, Dracula's, like, out in the sun. And I'm all, every time I see that scene where he's out in the sun, I'm like, you know, vampires shouldn't do that. But thankfully for the viewer, there is a helpful narration from Anthony Hopkins where he says, like, oh, many people think that vampires can't go out in the sun, but actually they're just low-powered. And you're like, oh, thanks, Anthony. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was questioning it beforehand. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is a fantastic film. Um, <laughs> uh, but so vampire lore can be wacky, but and you know, like in Buffy, you know, vampires when you stake them, they turn to dust, and Blade, they turn into blood balloons. You know, like you know, it's all sorts of different things go on. But like one of the things that's relatively always consistent is that they don't have a reflection. And uh, Ralph does have a reflection uh, that talks back to him, uh, which is, is, is weird. And I mean, I, again, I, I get that they're trying to portray him as a kind of a, a rubbish vampire. That's like, at first it seems he doesn't drink, but it, it's confusing the vampire lore in this movie because at first it seems like he doesn't drink blood. And then it's actually, he only, he drinks blood from bottles from blood banks is what he actually does. He um uh, he just doesn't drink fresh blood. He doesn't uh, murder people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's, he's... so like that that's confusing. And then yeah, garlic and crosses don't seem to work on him. And crosses don't seem to work in every film. So I suppose it can get away with that. But yeah, it's all over the place. I don't think they put a lot of thought into it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find that bizarre. And I think what they're kind of going for with him being this slacker vampire is that like. He's so bad as a vampire that he has that reflection. And not only does he have a reflection, he has a reflection that can answer back to him and seems like a totally different entity. He seems like a, a real mirror self. He's the polar opposite. Oh, yeah, he's not, it's like a shadow self, isn't he? He's like the mirror version of him is like he's successful with women. He's kind of more cocksure and outgoing, whereas Ralph's a lot more. Oh, I just want to play organ and like kind of be like, oh, mom, I'm going to bed. Like, whereas the, the mirror self is a lot more like, you know, up and at them and wants to go. And even that, 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 that's a plot line. It feels like the mirror aspect of it is a part of the curse, but doesn't get explored at all. No, it doesn't get explored. Like, because it's weird that. They kind of bring that up. They kind of bring up at one point uh, that the mirror, the mirror self is trapped in the mirror until the curse has ended and can, and can be released from the mirror once the, the, the curse has ended. And that's kind of thrown up by the reflection, Ralph, or Andrew Dice Clay Ralph, as I <laughs> uh, came to know him in my mind. 
Um, <laughs> and the uh, yeah, that, duck. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, that's uh, yeah. That's you can't like. That's exactly how he's stylized as well because he's got the kind of quiff and stuff, mm-hmm. and then he's a, a sexist asshole. And um, yeah, he's got that kind of swagger in that as well. So like, um, that's that's who I felt he was. Andrew Dice Clay Ralph. Um, and yeah, the, it is like that is a one thing that you know it does kind of age badly in that viewing it through twenty twenty two eyes because it does feel very incelly a lot of it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. So let let yeah, let's talk about the film and. I don't I think you know what you're in for from moment zero when you get that title sequence that looks like it's I don't know, I imagine like the <laughs> the Count uh, the Count Duckula title sequence is a lot more like high budget than this ever was. Like do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it might be. Count Duckula was probably the first vampire thing I ever saw. Yeah. I remember I yeah. Him or the count, I reckon, are the first are the first vampires yeah, I would yeah. have seen. Yeah. I I had um I really liked Count Docula as a kid. And I had a, a VHS of Count Docula where if you if you pressed a button on the front of the VHS, it played the theme tune. Amazing. And I did that I did that all the time and my mother wanted to kill me. Um <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, uh, what what did you make of that title sequence? Um, yeah, I suppose like it's it's pretty cheap uh, title sequence, and uh, yeah, again, I do feel like a lot of this movie seems kind of derivative of something else. In that you're constantly thinking, you know, you watch the title sequence, and they're like, you kind of like, oh, us. Quite Tim Burton esque, I think they're trying to do that. You know, like that's that's what was my thought anyway. Yeah, and it had like it it, it riffed upon like a, that that Scooby Doo trope of having like loads of like where Scooby Doo would have all the doors in a hallway. This is like a load of coffins. Yeah. and had like Dracula coming in and out of the coffins and stuff like that. And it was like, at the, I didn't know. Like, I kind of didn't know what to expect from the title sequence i was like i don't no i think i did i was like oh no this is gonna be bad this is i'm in for a bad time right now like i'm not in for fun and then when the film started itself it kind of like it felt like it was filmed like it was a like on a set but for like tv you know like in front of a live studio audience so like it feels yeah. like that without a laugh track do you know what i mean and it's like a lot of like ralph making jokes to himself and stuff like that and like his mirror like cracking his mirror self cracking jokes and like i was like this is this feels very televisual it does feel very much like a kind of late 80s sitcom uh at the start yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got it's it, it it it's it's got though it's got that vibe. And like it took me a while to really like figure out they were vampires. I like one of my first notes is like, are they vampires? Like, I don't know, just like what like obviously the film is called Rockula. I should have I should have I should have done that, but I kind of went in fresh and then did some research 
like after watching it but like it was a bit like oh that's like where is this film going to go and then it sets it up very early on at like what the kind of uh what the stakes of this film are right yes because there's like a barmaid character played by susan tyrell who's a kind of cult actress been a bunch of things but like um i think her most famous things like uh what's that film called forbidden zone i think, it's uh-huh. it, I think it's, yeah 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 i think she's in a couple of john waters movies as well but uh yeah and she basically asked ralph questions and like the whole plot is explained to us of like what? the whole thing about the curse I've, and i've um, got that right the, here Around the middle of the 16th century, you... 17th, right? Right. Whenever, a long time ago, you met this girl, you fell in love, but there was a problem, she had a boyfriend. A pirate. A pirate? Pirate. Whatever. Now, she loved you, right? So you were going to slip off, get married, when old Pegleg finds out, has a shit fit and comes after you. Pissed as hell. I just established his mental state. So there's a fight. Pegleg loses his sword, and what's her name gets killed by a blow to the head with a ham bone. Mona. Her name is Mona. Whatever. You tried to save her, but what could you do in the face of 20 pissed off pirate friends of Pegleg's who are going to turn you into bat meat, and so you beat it? He escaped by the skin of his teeth. Right. And since she was killed before you could fulfill your preordained lack. Before he could give her that final fatal kiss and turn her into a vampire. Whatever. Now reincarnated every 22 years until you two can get it right, right? Right. And so tomorrow you are going to meet her as you've done every 22 years. You'll fall in love, and unless you save her, this crazed pirate with a rhinestone peg leg will kill her. On Halloween. You got it. What are you going to do? I'm going to do what I should have done years ago. I'm going to lock myself in my room and avoid this whole thing. <laughs> So we're told that in maybe moment four, five of this film. Do you know what I mean? Like we're minute five, we're told that. And then yeah. it is just, you, you're left the rest of the film going, all right, I can relax now. I know where this film is going. Let's, let's see how the fuck this is going to, this is going to play out. And I don't I <laughs> what well, I don't know, like, uh, yeah. Tell, like, tell me, like, oh, tell me what you like about this film, Scott. I want to know what you like because I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of yeah, t- torn on this like, film. Yeah, I, I don't like purely shitting on films. I'm either. Um, what do I like about the, these films? Actually, my my favorite things um, about this film is uh, I think Thomas Dolby is having a lot of fun. Um, There's, you know, we talked a little bit about the kind of forced wackiness um, of the movie. And, but I think Thomas Dolby kind of gets it right in terms of like what he's aiming. I think if everybody was kind of playing at his level, it might be, it might not be a good movie, but it might be like a, a more kind of, uh, it might skip along faster. It might be a more entertaining watch. Um, because I feel that uh, 
the other, you know, central roles of like Mona and Ralph, um, like by Tor, uh, Dean Cameron and, and Tony Fair, are kind of they're relatively bland. They're likable enough, but they're relatively bland. But he, Thomas Dolby, is going all out. He's, a, he's an eccentric dude, and I, I think his performance, and also I think the funniest gags actually a lot of the the, the gags in the movie are, are like kind of so obvious and and kind of lame that it's it's just they don't really hit but the 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 ones that really do hit is in stanley's fake commercials there is two fake commercials for stanley's kind of he, stanley by the way is a is, is a music manager stroke undertaker again yes. this movie just kind of forces <laughs> wacky things together um uh, but he has uh, two fake commercials in the movie um the first one is uh for stanley's death park when it's done in the style of like a kind of uh, you know secondhand car salesman, and he's wearing a big cowboy hat, Should we listen and to that? he's good, you know. Let's have a listen to St- Stanley's yeah. Death Park. So that yeah that that ad like I because I was like I I was I was bemused when I first saw that because I was like kind of had to rewind it one to like pull that clip and two I was like so we're kind of so we're introduced to Mona when she runs over Ralph right and he's like oh shit like I've met her again like I, I I've been trying to avoid her. And then we get that scene of her, like, yeah, like you say, it looks like a, it doesn't look like, a, it looks like a music shop, like what they would imagine a music shop would look like in the 80s, at least. Like, it's all white and there's stuff. And then he comes in, then that ad just threw me for a loop. So I was like, right, so what does he have to do with music? Like, do you know what I mean? Because he's talking about, and I imagine it's probably, because knowing Thomas Dolby's like music and stuff like that, was quite a pioneer with stuff like synthesizers and stuff like that. And he mentions like, oh, this, this machine here can can sample anything and stuff like that. And it's like, that's kind of a bit of like a, a wink wink to the like, Thomas Dolby fans and stuff like that. But I was like, are they just shoehorning in all of this like music producer stuff just because that is like who Thomas Dolby is anyway? Do you know what I mean? And then it's like, now we've got this yeah. thing that he owns like this this weird funeral parlor but that yeah that ad is is fucking great right yeah and the second ad is just as funny as well yeah. 
when it's uh, he's showing off all the the different uh, types of coffins that they have. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I have that one. I don't, I don't know why I don't have that because that was great. That that kind of uh, that second ad where he's talking about like I've got it written down like the type of uh, coffins he does. Um, just need to find them in my notes. I should definitely uh yeah so he's got like the record 2000 which is like he's kind of selling it like have you ever worried about like not hearing the voice of your nagging partner in the afterlife well now you can like record a record a clip of them speaking and like visit them every time hear it back every time you visit them and it's like a woman going like oh david I don't like it when you leave the beer cans in the kitchen, like or something like that. And this like this kind of redneck comes out, and he's like, "Oh, it's so good to hear my wife again." And that that's great. And then it's uh, it's it's his line. His line delivery is really fun because he he says something like, "It's been three years since my dear whatever her name was Doris or whatever um it died, and but I've I've not missed a single minute of her scathing banter." <laughs> <laughs> and then another one is like he's got this revolving uh coffin you can buy, which is like for loved ones who like. Loved ones who are disappointed in your life choices can now live eternity in our new Revolver 3000 so they can always be spinning in their grave. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good gag. Um, <laughs> the other funny thing about that ad is like, um, I like uh, things that just throw in kind of absurd visual details just for the sake of it sometimes. And in that ad, there's like two like women who just get into a fight in the background mm -hmm. of, 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 of that second ad. And I was just like, there's no point to have that, but it amuses me that they've thrown that little detail in as well of like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, they couldn't afford to do a second take or whatever, you know? <laughs> Whilst we're talking about Thomas Dolby, like one of the songs in this, because like a lot of them are, are sung and performed by Dean Cameron and uh, Tawny Fur. Uh, yes yeah. as well like but there was one song that just kind of jumped out to me and i was like oh what is that that feels a bit different and it's this song right here So this is, yeah, this is Budapest by Blimp, by Thomas Dolby. Yeah. Oh. And it feels, yeah, it feels like, it feels like playing a clip of that is a perfect time to talk about the music in this film. Because that song, as I said, like, for me, really stood out as something like, oh what is what is this because it, it's kind of like 
the, the the film itself kind of like breaks off into basically like music videos like not even musical sequences they like it's like they're kind of directed differently it's like it will become one of them happens to actually then become a music video which i thought was like a a cool little touch to it it kind of made the the musical sequence makes sense within the narrative of the film. But like, um, yeah, what did you make of the music throughout this film? Well, I think some of the music is quite entertaining. Um, it's a bit hit and miss. I think that the Thomas Dolby track does kind of stand out in <laughs> that, you know, is the, is the track that you kind of, it kind of hits your ear and you're kind of like, oh, that sounds like a, I, I, it sounds kind of patronizing to say a proper song, but um, mm-hmm. it, it's a, it, it just sounds more like um, an original piece of music, I guess, because a lot of the songs in the movie, you kind of listen to them and you're kind of like, oh, right, I see what they're trying to do. Like the, the song that becomes the music video uh, is called like By My Side and it's like, all right, this is like a kind of cut-rate Bonnie Tyler, Pat Benatar type song, you know. And there's a lot of, of a lot of that kind of going on. Of like, um, there, there's you know, there's a song kind of uh, kind of start when he first sees her called "Turn Me Loose." That's yeah. like, oh, this is kind of like something Madonna would have made at the time or something like that. And the, the, there's a lot of that go, going on of, of like, just feels like kind of slightly diet versions of something else not that they're terrible songs most of them aren't terrible songs by my side's quite an entertaining uh, power ballad there is one terrible song like um i'm sure we'll 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 talk about the the atrocity that is rapula um but <laughs> <laughs> but you know what i mean they're they're not necessarily terrible but a lot of them do feel like kind of watered down versions of something else yeah well i think i think by by my side like there's that that sequence is quite it's quite sweet and fun and i like the kind of like the the visuals of it where it's like kind of uh yeah got him like on the car bonnet and stuff like that it is quite like a fun little sequence where it's like oh like this is quite sweet and charming at this point of the film and it's like and for that like reveal for it to be a music video it's like oh that's kind of neat do you know what I mean? It is kind of like yeah, no, it's it's quite it's quite cool when 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 that happens when it like pans out and then you you see the, the little credit come up, you know, by my side, you know, and the, the record company or, or or whatever, and and it turns out they're all watch. It's like a video premiere of, of the um of her music video. Yeah, which and is I, I was like, ah, oh, that's yeah. It was it was quite sweet because I was like, um, it was a little bit confusing the way it's kind of constructed within the movie because like. They go out on this date and then uh, they, they they kiss and then he leaves and walks into the rain and then and then they're kind of like looking for each other and you're kind of like oh why are they looking for each other because he's just walked away I, I don't quite understand and then so like the the cut off between what is like happening really within the narrative and then what is the music video seems a little bit blurred and confusing but like once I was like kind of it had that reveal of like oh it's a music an actual music video within the movie um i was like ah oh, that's that's quite the that's a quite cool trick that they they played yeah <laughs> and and, it, and it's actually something that's like 
seeded earlier in the film as well, right? Because when um, Ralph's mum comes to like see them when he's like playing, I think it's right after he performs Rapula, maybe. Um, uh, yeah. She says Rick- like, oh yeah, you need to come over for dinner. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, come over on Thursday. And uh, uh, what is, M- Mona says like, oh Thursday, I've got, I've got the, oh like Ralph like says, we can't do Thursday. She's got the, the, the music video premiere and stuff like that. And then, do you know what I mean? It kind of, oh, w- when that happens, it's like, right, yeah, twigged it. That was seeded earlier yeah. in the film. It, yeah. It's not like yeah, a kind yeah. of, Absolutely. like other moments in this film. It's not a kind of bizarre left turn or anything like that. Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of, yeah, to backtrack within the film's plot to kind of talk about some of these these earlier songs, um, I guess we need to explain a little bit of the, the plot and how the... Um, Ralph kind of looks to pursue Mona because obviously he 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 decides to go after her. Like after he just says like I'm I'm gonna go like check her out, and then we have this sequence where he's like I I can't like I don't know how I'm gonna find her, and then his mirror self says like if you if you need to find her, I'm sure the universe will let you know. And then that moment a flyer is put up on like the the mirror he's looking into like. Tonight, I think it's like the Hell Club, Mona. Pop Hell, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ralph goes to her gig, and then they kind of have their first little chat, which goes a little something like this. Who are you? I'm, I'm Ralph. I like your music. It's kind of wow, kind of now, kind of... Following me? I'm I'm not following you. Yes, you are. Okay, I'm following you. I'm a big fan of yours from way back. Who are you? I told you I'm Ralph. No, I mean, what, what do you do? Are you a musician? Yes. Do you have a band, or do you play by yourself? Um, yes. Yes, what? Yes, I have a band. What's the name? The name. Of the band. Um, we haven't decided yet. So, um, well, from that what kind of music? Decides, well, the music, we're, how, how we're not sure yet. Mona is he's going to start a rock band, right? Yes. And, like, um, you, you said before, you know, like, uh, trying to mention all the things that we like about the movie, um, so we're not just in, in, entirely shitting on the movie. Um, that, that was quite fun as well. Like, the little montage that he has of like trying to find out like what kind of band and they're you know they're dread you know and it's the the, the bands uh, kind of made up of like Susan Tyrell's barmaid um the guy with the long hair and the beard that never gets a character I, like I don't think he I, I don't know who he is and Bo Diddley and then they're like dressed as like mariachis and they're dressed in all these kind of different ways and then they, they kind of hit on like oh it's, it's going to be rockula and i think that's quite a fun montage yeah so yeah when this is him deciding he's going to start a band so what happened let's face it I don't have what it takes. How can I save her if I can't even talk to her? Maybe I'll see your band sometime, she says. What a joke. 
don't you? Why don't you start my own band? So th- that <laughs> that's one of the things I love about that sequence is the fact that it is scored by that very 80s kind of I don't know Casio keyboard like demo track music of like or or you yeah. expect someone very white to be rapping over the top be like hey little kitties i'm here to say look after your parents every day do you know what i mean it's the very like kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. public service announcement rap rap track you could you could imagine and then um yeah it's 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 his mirror self right who kind of comes up with the name rockula yeah, sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And um, one of the things I don't buy, even even within this film, uh, I think the most unbelievable thing in this film is when they play their first gig, the fact that it is at a venue like it is and that it is packed out and, like, they are the most popular band in the world for their first ever gig. It's like, I've played in bands and your first gig is never like that. You are never getting those kind of applause and accolades. It's normally in the back of a pub to about five people, and they don't want to really be watching you at all. Yeah, I I, I get that because I don't believe that either. You know, I you know because like what we've established so far is that um, Mona is like a little bit into her career, and it seems that this club hell is. I mean, I don't know if this will make any sense to you, but like, um, you know, I'm trying to think of like an equivalent or club that I'm I'm aware of. You know, it's like a kind of you know a kind of prestige like smaller club. It's like you know, um, like King Tut's in Glasgow or something that like has like a, a big name to it, even though it's like a small venue. It seems like it's something like that that has got it's got um, you know a little bit of cachet to its name, and so for them to like get in to that place like immediately and then have like a packed out audience yeah i didn't buy that either <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 definitely it's uh yeah because that first song we get is he's rockular right where he's kind of like it's kind of hit his like uh uh again that one's not too bad it's probably only really rapular that is like a real like makes my skin crawl yeah, no, the, the, the first Rockula song is it's fine. Yeah. It's 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 an enter, kinda entertaining uh, kind of upbeat number and it yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and then and then uh, I think a song that really like took me by surprise is the song that his mum performs, the Tony Bliss track we get when they have a, a dinner party with yeah, it's uh, Ralph, Mona, his mum, uh, Phoebe, is that her name? Is it? Yeah. Phoebe. Yeah. Phoebe's her name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, she has like this guy who I assume is like some kind of wrestler or something. He's called like Big Boom Boom or like Boom Boom He's Baby. Good. The only, like, um, yeah, I think he appeared in other like kind of canon films. I think, um, it's, oh, I can't remember his real name. I think it's Rick Zumwalt. And he was in a Sylvester Stallone movie that Canon produced called Over the Top. And I think he might have been... In that film has lots of 
professional, you know, arm wrestlers uh, in it. And I, I'm not sure if he's one of them who was like, uh, or was just an actor, or if he was one of them who was a professional arm wrestler. <laughs> um, so, like, uh, yeah. So, yeah. If you want to watch um, an, an arm wrestling uh, uh, family drama uh, that you can over the top is. It's the movie for you. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a movie about arm wrestling and a custody battle. What more it's, could you want? I don't know. But in... <laughs> <laughs> what more could you want? Yeah, I'm. I want to play a little bit of uh, that song. I think it's called like in in the night or like. I just think it's called the night. The night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. again and all i want to do is jam with my friends and jamming is what i'll do and i'll jam the house i'll jam it down on you obviously like a lot of people may know her for her one hit wonder hey mickey yeah. right yeah yeah so like she she what yeah what do you make of her performance in this film I think she's quite fun in the movie, actually. Um, I, again, I think she's one of the stronger performers. And I think um, that in that sequence, in that kind of for her song, uh, I think her dancing, which I looked at the credits, she choreographed herself, mm -hmm. um, was was one of the most entertaining things. Um, I also do think that uh, the kind of cutaways to Boom Boom's reactions uh, while he's kind of smoking a cigar is that that's also uh, adds to the entertainment of that dance sequence. <laughs> and I, I I I love every time she's on screen because she's 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 playing it to the right tempo, right? Like throughout the whole film, like every time she's on screen, she's kind of like got this. I don't know, she's kind of playing it a bit like Elvira-esque, like... Yeah, very much so. Quite over the top. And I, I, I like, yeah, every time she's on screen, it's it's really funny. Like, she has these, like, I don't know, like, her kind of... I almost want to, like, follow her escapades. Like, when she's... I think at one point she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, like, Thursday... I'm going to, like, Tuesday Gun Club with my friends and, like, uh, going down the shooting range. Or she kind of goes out and picks up men. And you can only imagine that she probably is more of an old school vampire and like drains their blood do you know what i mean like she's i think uh, really early on she's in the bath with tony cox yeah yeah and then like ha has this has this like wrestler later on it's like she's definitely just banging them sucking their blood and letting them letting them drain out <laughs> yeah 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 for sure um and uh, again i i do think you know, if, if more of the movie was like that, then it would be a, a more entertaining watch because, like, 
Whenever she's on screen or Thomas Dolby on, is on screen, the temperature of the movie rises. You know, it's like it's like you know it, they bring everything up. Like every scene she's in, she absolutely owns. Like the dinner sequence where the you know Mona and Ra, you know Mona comes around for dinner and they're we're all sitting around the table and she's just telling stories of like oh you know like. It sounds like she's telling stories about like banging the founding fathers, um, you know, like, um, and just just all her tales. Like she totally owns that sequence, and like that whole section in the movie from the dinner th uh, through to her dance sequence, she is the the one you are watching mm -hmm. the whole time, and you don't care about the other characters. And it's like, oh, that's that's definitely a weakness when you don't care about your main characters, and yeah. it's a side character that you're. Um, uh, you know, invested in. Yeah, definitely. And I, like, I guess one of the one of the plot points that runs throughout this film that we we should probably talk about is like Ralph has this to and fro of like when he's gonna tell Mona that he is a vampire, right? And it kind of <laughs> it culminates with him taking her to a graveyard, and uh, he kind of tries to explain it all to her. You see these people? They're dead. I'm not. I can see that, Ralph. But, but I'm older. What? Mona, I'm a vampire. And I'm the bride of Frankenstein. No, seriously, Mona, it's the truth. I'm not a bad vampire. I am a bad vampire. I'm not very good at it. I don't bite people, but I am a vampire. Ralph, this is a very common thing. It is? Yes, sure it is. People begin to believe their stage personas all the time. No, 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 no. I don't think I'm a vampire. I really am a vampire. Prove it. Look, Fang, see? Well, it's probably something that just runs in the family, Ralph. Besides, I knew a girl in the eighth grade. She had bigger teeth than that. She wasn't a vampire, Ralph. You really should have those filed down, though. Okay, all that stuff my mom was talking about back at the house, it's all true. Mona, you are 422 years old. This is your 19th lifetime. You always die on Halloween night of your 22nd year. Ralph! Mona, we were lovers 400 years ago, and every 22 years since then, and it always ends the same way. And how is that? You were killed by a pirate with a peg leg wielding a gigantic ham bone. And then so I'm reborn. That over is and over. The first I think time maybe you in just the film need some therapy, this. Ralph. Maybe even the okay. fourth. We are told this premise that every 22 years you are reborn and we fall in love again and then the, the pirate comes after you. And I can, like, I was trying to figure out, is that, are they trying to do a riff on the, the, the like, Bram Stoker's Dracula thing of obviously, like, um, his wife is reincarnated, like, years later and, like, I guess, in, uh, in Francis Ford Coppola's film, the Winona Ryder character is the spitting image of his of his dead wife. Um, I mean, they might be. They they they, they might be trying to do that. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not. I'm honestly not sure what what they're going for. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 a <laughs> maybe I'm giving this as good an explanation as any. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that scene culminates in Ralph turning into a bat. Uh, what did you make? We we really need to talk about this kind of uh, puppet bat thing that is terrifying. 
it is genuinely the stuff of nightmares. And it's obviously supposed to be just kind of goofy and funny. Uh, but it just looks so weird. Yeah, so a lot of, you know, you see a lot of vampire movies where they, they turn into bats that are just like actual bats. That's what they, but this is like, it's like a shortened, it's like a man bat. It's like a mini man bat. And it's like his face, but with little bat wings and then little, little tiny, presumably he's like on his knees or something, and little kind of tiny feet. And it's just, yeah, just a really weird look at it. I don't know why they decided to go in this direction. It's a really kind of, and then just because like, you know, we've talked a lot about this movie's kind of forced wackiness. Every time he like moves, it like makes fart noises yeah, just yeah. because it's just like, because we'll throw that in because, you know, we're just throwing everything. <laughs> you know, like, like what, why is any of this happening? I have no idea. Definitely. Definitely. It feels like it must have been the same, uh, like, uh, like special effects artist who worked on Ghoulies perhaps who did this Possibly. because it's the same kind of real ropey looking kind of, prosthetics that they do for this man yeah. but and yeah, yeah. is is terrifying and the fact that it 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 comes back at the, you knew it was going to come back at the end but when it oh, did, absolutely. I was like, oh no oh no <laughs> <laughs> so should, yeah do we talk about the latter the, the the latter stages of this film so obviously after that mona runs away and is like I want nothing to do with you. And then it kind of like, it's supposed to culminate in her playing a gig, right? Uh, but on Halloween night. And that's when Thomas Dolby through. Yeah. So we haven't even talked about the fact that he, he goes to see a fortune teller, right? Who, um, yeah, he has that's this right. exchange with a fortune teller. Immediately, <laughs> like I, 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 like to the point that it confused me that I didn't know if the filmmakers were making it like a gag or <laughs> if they were seriously imagining this was going to be a plot twist later on in the movie when it was revealed that the psychic was Phoebe. I, 
yeah, I was, I was, uh, I thought like, oh, maybe, I mean, and to give the filmmakers a break, you know, maybe they, they did just do it as a joke that they were making it really obvious and, and it's supposed to be like just a, a gag. Um, but if it is supposed to be a plot twist, it's awful. <laughs> and then like when, <laughs> like one of the moments I really liked in this, because obviously Thomas Dolby's character, Stanley, is trying to fulfill this prophecy and we we hear him like on the phone trying to get a rhinestone peg leg and then they say like how how are you getting on with the ham bone and we get a shot of like a pig in his bed and he's like oh yeah. i'm not quite there and i was like that is just it just for the weirdness of it i thought like, that's pretty funny do you know what i mean the fact that he's just got this <laughs> this this pig next to him so yeah let's talk about how this kind of film uh wraps up and yeah do you mind do you mind kind of telling us how how this kind of plays out in its final scenes scott yeah so like basically um as you described mona was supposed to do a gig in that kind of classic romantic comedy style mona um decides to to skip town um but then like the van breaks down and the, the airport shuttle van like breaks down and stuff like that and then and then she has a change of heart and then has to race to the venue and everybody's everybody's kind of like oh you know and then her like kind of assistant woman uh, who is kind of like her pa kind of um but also plays synth sometimes for her. it's it's unclear what her role really is um she like kind of fills in for her and starts doing a starts doing a song and then uh, we see Ralph and, and Mona at either wing of the stage, and they catch each other's eye, and and then they like um, and they they embrace and they kiss, and then but it turns out that Stanley is up in the rafters, ready to kidnap uh, Mona. So he swings down from the rafters, he kidnaps Mona, and um, Ralph is then looking for her, and then has an interaction with his reflection, who for some reason is psychic and knows exactly where Stanley is. Or <laughs> <laughs> or has been somewhere else in his reflection world, so he knows where Stanley is with Mona. Um, but he won't tell Ralph until Ralph says, "I'm, you know, we're best mates, or you know, I'm your best mate in the world." So Ralph does that. He apologizes for making a snide comment to him. Says that, and then we uh, go up to 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 the, to the kind of attic of the building, and um, we have like our kind of final confrontation where um, Stanley basically gives up on his peg leg and decides just to kind of throw over his shoulder. Um, so he drops it on the ground. He has a ham bone. Uh, Ralph has a, a, the peg leg. They have like a sword fight. And there's like, there's like a really weird problematic gag in the middle of the sword fight where they both touch crotches and immediately go, yeah. you know, you can like, yeah, that hasn't aged well. Um, so they have that fight, uh, and then it looks like Stanley's going to win and, and kill uh, Mona, but then uh, the horrifying creature effect comes back into play. He turns into that. Stanley is so horrified. He trips backwards into his own cryogenic chamber, and then it turns out, yes, Phoebe is the psychic, and that's revealed to both Mona and Ralph. They seem not that upset about it, despite the fact that Mona has been killed in like 15 different past lives by this woman, and uh, you know, like 
yeah. Ralph has been stopped from having a love life due to her, but immediately forgiven and everything kind of ends happily. Well, I think it is forgiven because I've got a clip of when it is revealed and why I think Ralph might forgive his mum. Madame Benoit? Mrs. Levy. Madame Benoit? Mum! I thought I was doing the right thing, but now I know I was wrong. You mean you were behind this the whole time? You were my little boy. I didn't want you to leave home. Now I know you're all grown up. You're in this together! Die, vampire scum! I think that is why... That was my mother you just boned. She was a traitor! I think that that is enough to go, Oh, she got hit on the head with a hand bone. Ralph forgives her. It's all okay now. Like, let's, let's, let's move on, forgive and forget. <laughs> Just so I, I buy, I almost buy Ralph um, forgiving her, uh, but like Mona forgiving her is, is something else. That's like, wait, what? I have died like 15 times because of you, lady. <laughs> that is true. At least she's got to. But she has no idea of those previous lives, right? So, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's but, true. Although, it, again, again, she has some idea because she keeps kind of remembering things from past lives. Uh, you know, it's again, that's not fully kind of gone into mm-hmm. of like how much she is aware of the of the past lives. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And it feels I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the 1980s version of this is the most exciting version. I'm sure there's like a a serious film or like a better done film that is kind of a, through the ages. Do you know what I mean? Like a kind of comedy yeah. about like a guy, almost like a kind of uh, Groundhog Day-esque escapades of this. I'm sure the the, <laughs> the filmmakers did not have the budgets to kind of go back 400 years and kind of go over all the no, different they, all the different they definitely scenarios. did not have the budget for that well <laughs> the thing is they do these weird sequences where ralph has dreams and kind of nightmares about you you imagine their things from the past and this is very like like weird sets and very like camp pirates and that all like taking her away and it is all like kind of it's like a stage production of peter pan or something yeah um so let's let's talk about the very end of this film because it's like it gets it's kind of like resolved and then you're left on a question because the shadow self breaks out of the mirror and turns into elvis and performs a song and it's like i don't know why the mirror self has broken out of the mirror i don't know why he looks like elvis so are we now to believe that there are two Ralphs in the world? I I believe so. I, I again I, I think the the movie didn't fully think this through and just thought it'd be cool to have like one last number and uh, have it performed by the reflection Ralph. Oh. Yeah. Bizarre. Bizarre. Um so yeah, as <laughs> as we start to uh wrap things up obviously this film has 
you, you, you were explaining to me off mic. I, I, I'd like to go into it a bit more if you don't mind. Like, this film has a cult following, right? Yes, I discovered it has somewhat of a cult following. Um, so my podcast, New Horror Express, is part of um, a podcast network called the Morbidly Beautiful Network. Um, and uh, I noticed that the Morbidly Beautiful Network had an article on this movie. And it's somebody who's like a big fan of the movie and they'd like set up a Facebook group um, for other fans of the movie and they got in touch and had like interviews with like um, people involved in the movie, like Dean Cameron and uh, other other people. I think the writers and directors as well. And uh, yeah, I, I think they were instrumental in this getting uh, a Blu-ray release um, by Scream Factory in 2018, which would have been its uh, 30th anniversary. Not the 30th anniversary of when it was released, but the 30th anniversary of, of when it was made. And it feels, I don't know, like, my feeling of it is, I imagine if you grew up with this film, I can see that cult following being a thing. Do you know what I mean? This kind of feels like a thing that maybe if I'd watched this younger or kind of was of the age bracket to catch it on video and kind of have a fondness for it. Like, I think I wrote in a, a letterbox review of this, like, having a deep knowledge of this film and kind of watching it with like-minded people and having a few drinks and having a laugh of it and like knowing all the songs would be really fun. I don't think I have the time in my life to get to know, no. to want to get to know the film that much to get to that point, to, to make it fun. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah, on like a, a yeah, watching it twice. It's a bit like, ugh, like I don't, I don't, I don't know if like I, I want to watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. I'm kind of the same. I was kind of well, I've watched it twice now, and um, that's probably enough. <laughs> but I'm also, I also totally agree, though. I like it is one of those movies. If, for example, I had, you know, in in my childhood, rented this on VHS, I might have like this like um, real affection for it because it, it it is the kind of like a, a silly daft movie that has a lot of wacky things in it. And I think probably would have appealed to me as as a kid. And uh, so I think I would view it way more through rose tinted glasses and mm -hmm. um, be like, yeah, it has all these like flaws, but it's got these funny bits and like, you know, yeah, I, I think I think there would have been stuff in there that would would have appealed to me. So I can see it. I can see, you know, if you saw this at a young age, you had it on on VHS. Yeah, I can I can see the kind of cult appeal there. Perfect, perfect. Well. Yeah, as we start to wrap it up, I always like to go through the film and see if there's any Coppola connections. Are there any people who are in this film or worked on this film that have worked with the Coppolas elsewhere? Did you manage to find any, Scott? Yes, I managed to find I managed to find a bunch. I didn't think I was going to... At first, I was kind of looking through the cast and I was like, there's, there's not much here. Well, should, we uh, go, should we go back and forth on, on them then? So I'll let, I'll let you go first with yeah. the first one. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, so the first one that I've got, I mean, so some of the ones I've got are like really tangential, so we don't need to read those out necessarily, but I've got four that I've got direct connections. So the first one is Neil Dickerson, who is assistant art director on this film, was also assistant art director on The Rainmaker, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, that's a lovely one. That's, a, that's, a, that's beautiful. I'm going to go for one that's 
Uh, my first one here maybe is slightly tenuous, but I like it all the same. Uh, Dean Cameron played Jeff Spicoli in the Fast Times TV show, which um, is obviously based on the film Fast Times at Bridgemont High, which was oh. the first film where Nicolas Cage appeared on screen as uh, Brad's okay. bud, just like in a I've got a, I've got a tenuous Dean Cameron one as well. Perfect. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Dean Cameron starred in Noah Baumbach's debut feature, Kicking and Screaming, alongside Eric Stoltz, who had a brief role in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, who also had a brief, uh, brief role by Nicolas Cage. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> so uh, my next one here is Tony Basil. So um, uh-huh. she was the choreographer on Peggy Sue Got Married, the Francis Ford Coppola nice. film from the mid-'80s. I kind of really like those ones where it's like, an actor or somebody who has a role elsewhere within a film like that. Yeah. Is, is, is it the cool same? One. Uh, my next one is Kenny Alexander was stunt coordinator on this film. He was a stunt player on Wind Talkers, Nicolas Cage film. Lovely, lovely. Uh, my next one is Tony Cox plays Hooter in Captain EO, a short film starring Michael Jackson and Angelica Houston, which was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I, I, I am vaguely aware of that. that like, um, I, I think I, I wasn't aware of it, but I think there was a while back, there was like an Empire article on it or whatever, some years ago, um, and uh, it made me aware of that. Yeah, I'm yet to watch it. I really, I really. I've never watched that. Yeah, I, I, I will at some point for the podcast talk about it. Maybe I'm not sure. It seems weird to talk about Michael Jackson, but I guess uh, yeah. we we need to talk about the filmmaking, not necessarily the man himself. Uh, so yeah, yeah, what's your next Coppola connection? Uh, next one, Tony Gardner, special makeup effects artist on this movie. Also did special makeup effects on The Rock, starring Nicolas Cage. Three Kings, starring Spike Jones while he was married to um, Sophia. Uh, Human Nature, starring Patricia Arquette while she was married to Nicolas Cage. And Adaptation, starring Nicolas Cage. Perfect. I love it. I love it. Uh, my final one I've got here, and this is one I really like. One of the writers of this film, Jeffrey Levi, only has two acting credits. One of them is a short film he made called Me, and the other one is in Gia Coppola's mainstream from last year. Ah, he has a, he has that he has the two two acting credits and one of them happens to be a Coppola connection and I absolutely loved it for that. <laughs> That's awesome. My my last direct one is um Donna, oh, not Donna, Donald Embold was a set decorator on this film and worked in the art department for the Outsiders and Rumblefish. Oh. And then I've got a couple of ones that are really, really tenuous. So. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> that feels like a perfect place to end it. So what would yeah, be your absolutely. perfect wine pairing for this film, Scott? Um, so, like, I've... I'm 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 not really a drinker now. I've, I've I, like I don't really drink, but so I've I, I don't really know my wines that well, even when I was a drinker. Uh, so but I kind of had to think about it though, and I thought the best wine pairing for this is a box of Lambrusco because it has a cheap, trashy reputation and was also associated with the eighties. 
Perfect, perfect. I don't think I can top that. Lambrusco sounds like the yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. Imagine you'd uh, have some silly nights on a on a box of Lambrusco. So, uh, and and I imagine you could have some silly nights with this film. As I said, if you if you pay the time to to get to know the film beforehand, uh, that's perfect. So, is this is, is this film a bottom shelf, middle shelf, or top shelf wine slash film? Um, I probably say that um, as much as there is some fun points in it, most of them uh, by Tony Basil or uh, Thomas Dolby, it's probably a bottom shelf. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, it baffles me that it's it got a, a Scream Factory release and there's there's loads of films out there that don't have like even physical media releases. Do you know what I mean? Like in the kind of yeah, 21st century. And it's, yeah, this one seems to be, I don't know, maybe maybe the Rockular fans were the original toxic Snyder bro fans of their day just for a, <laughs> just for a forgotten horror comedy from the late 80s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a lot of that. I mean, like the, some of the, I mean, they do a lot of st- great stuff, you know, like uh, Scream Factory and, and, and those types of, of labels. Uh, but you know some of the releases, um, like same with like Shameless Entertainment and stuff like that. You, they, they throw out, you're like, oh really? You're you're doing like a special edition of this movie? Yeah, oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, even the high watermarks, even someone like Arrow. Do you know what I mean? Some of the stuff they yeah they yeah, get yeah. Out, you're like you just you just got a load of stuff for almost like in a kind of like. Uh, a yard sale it, do you know what I mean and just went yeah we'll release this as well do you know what I mean there's probably fans for it they'll probably be like we'll slap the arrow label on it and there's completionists who will buy it anyway so we're, we're yeah. kind of we're kind of we're kind of lucked out there um so let's move on to some impossible questions I always like to ask on this wow. podcast the first one being which Coppola member would you keep but in doing so you get rid of the filmographies of the entire rest of the family the more I thought about this, the more I thought this is a, just a terrible question. This is putting me <laughs> in a terrible position of, of like, um, you know, because I was like, I went back and forth. I, I think there's a lot of the Coppola family filmography that I'm a big fan of. Um, a fan of the, the Rocky franchise, you know, it's obviously Talia Shire. Um, a fan of a lot of Wes Anderson films. There's obviously Roman Coppola and um, Jason Schwartzman are a big part of. And also like Jason Schwartzman in, in other things. Um, I think uh, one of the kind of great underseen uh, TV shows of the last, I don't know, like decade or whatever, is is Bored to Death. I think that's within yeah. the last decade. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I really like that. And I'm a big fan of Nicolas Cage as well, and I've seen a lot of his movies, and I have a particular affinity for the, the likes of, you know, Conair, Face Off, Kick Ass, Mandy, Wild at Heart, a lot of his movies. Also, Nicolas Cage, um, I have like an acting scale based on Nicolas Cage um, called the called the Cage Willis scale, which is the how much um, an actor cares about like acting in movies. In my mind, is based on like Bruce Willis at the bottom and then Nicolas Cage at, at the top. Nicolas Cage always bringing it. Bruce Willis hardly ever bringing it. Uh-huh. And then like I rank all actors based on their effort based on that. Um, so. Despite that, I would have to get like a new scale. I think I would make it like the 
Pleasant, Donald Pleasant's Bruce Willis scale or something. <laughs> um, like, uh, I was going to go for Francis Ford because I, I was going to say, not necessarily because of any kind of cinema snob reasons, just because of very personal reasons of like, when I was starting to get serious about cinema, cinema in my mid-teens, there were certain directors uh, like Scorsese, Kubrick, Tarantino, and Coppola that really uh, hit with me. And uh, The Godfather, the first two Godfathers and Apocalypse Now are still amongst my favorite movies. So I'm going to keep Francis Ford for those reasons. That's uh, that's a, that, that's a perfect answer. I love it when people are selfish on this podcast. <laughs> like not not about what it does for cinema, what it does for the, the the state of play or anything like that. It's what do I like? And yeah, like you, you, you I, I like the fact that you toyed over those few people as well, and you kind of stated stated their case but at the end of the day you went you're all going to the incinerator guys i don't i don't care about any of you i like francis so yeah that's a that's a, a I, I commend i commend your answer entirely um so based on based on rock killer are the coplas the greatest film family of all time got based solely on rock killer yeah um no <laughs> <laughs> In the incinerator with all of you guys. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. I might have to agree with you on that point. It's based on this film alone. <laughs> so um, we get on to possibly the most important question of this podcast. What does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Um, I thought about this as well. You know, I was like, oh, I've I've listened to so, you know a few of your episodes, and I was like, oh, and lots of people give like funny answers, witty answers. I did not come up with a funny or or witty answer. I my thought was that he says, you'll never believe what you'll become famous for. <laughs> because I was just thinking, because I like, the more I thought about it, the more I was thinking about like. You know, at that stage in her career, like, what was she famous for? You know, like, she was, like, in these kind of indie drama comedies and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and even, like, going forwards, like, the, like, she would make The Island a couple of years after this as, like, a big action movie that nobody remembers. Um, but, like, yeah. You know, like, if you, even in, like, tw- before, like, Iron Man 2, if you said, like, what's What's Scarlett Johansson's like most iconic roles? I think you'd probably say like uh, Lost in Translation, Ghost World, maybe something like Vicky Cristina Barcelona. I, I don't know. You know, it's, it, yeah. there's that's the kind of movies that she seemed to star in. Uh, so that was my thought. Yeah, I do like the fact though that I don't know. Like now she's out of the MCU, she can kind of go do whatever she wants and imagine she's got enough money to do whatever she wants like she can but even while she was making those mcu movies she still had time to to appear in interesting stuff that imagine like was definitely passion projects for her like uh jonathan glazer's under the skin which like kind of works on the fact that she is this massive star and like that film i don't think would have worked with somebody who didn't have the the star appeal of her especially the way that that film was filmed like kind of guerrilla style and her actually driving around in a van and some of the reactions from people are kind of a bit like 
is that Scarlett Johansson driving around Glasgow? I think it is. Or it like, yeah, it is Glasgow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I, d- I do think, like, as much as she kind of did sell a piece of her soul to the, to the to the Mickey Mouse Corporation and the kind of Marvel machine, like I think there's still a part of it that is I don't know entrenched in that indie filmmaking. And uh, imagine, oh yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely think so because like, and she, you know, she did like kind of kind of left field things of like uh, you know, roles that you'd think a film star that big wouldn't do. Even something like her, you know, she's just like a voice, you know, it's just like, oh, that seems like an, like an odd, odd move. And um, yeah, I, I think that's maybe where her heart is really, because like when you see her in something like marriage story or whatever, you know, something yeah. like that, you're like, oh, this is like a natural fit for you. I, I think that's what the kind of stuff that she really likes making. Yeah. You get some, a sense that some people genuinely enjoy making like uh, like comic book films or, or like big blockbusters. But I, I get the sense that that's really where, where our heart is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can agree with you more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, was a, that was a great answer. That kind of, especially because you spawned, spawned that, that, that great little conversation. So, um. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott, for coming and making some Copa connections with me. Where can people find you and everything you do with the podcast? It's time to plug away, my friend. Okay, well, uh, the podcast has a website, so you can find us at newhorrorexpress.com. You can also look us up on Facebook um, and uh, Twitter at newhorrorexp. And you can basically find us wherever podcasts are, I guess. We're um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever, you know. So check it out. <laughs> Amazing. Again, thank you so much for coming and making some Copa connections with me. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. There you have it, guys. Our conversation all about Rockula. A massive thank you once again to Scott Murphy for joining me. It was a fantastic conversation. Uh, I hope our energies didn't conflict too much with his Saturday morning chilled out vibes and my Friday night. Let's get shit faced and talk about uh, a canon movie vibes that I was very much there with. And thank you to you guys listening to this conversation if you'd like to get in touch if you're a big fan of this film we did a disservice to it in any way don't hesitate to uh jump on the social so that is twitter instagram facebook and letterboxd all at caged in pod or if you want to send uh say a bit more long form you can always drop me an email which is caged in pod at gmail.com as for next week on the podcast we will be finishing off our little look into the 50 shades trilogy with the final installment 50 shades free released in 2018 and our copula connection for that film once again is john swartzman but that is just because i wanted to get that episode nice and out just before valentine's day so you can you can hold it there in your podcatcher to to listen to around the that romantic season and really getting the uh, romantic vibes 
I'll, of course, be joined by the fantastic Charlie Vero Martin to close off that trilogy as well. If you would like to support this podcast, you can head on over now to patreon.com forward slash CagedInPod and get access to our brand spanking new bonus series exclusive exclusive to patreon movie brat bros where in the first season we are kicking off by looking at the films of the one the only brian de palma where episodes drop fortnightly and it will cost you as little as two pound fifty or three dollars a month to sign up what other patreons offering you that well i'm sure there's other ones some offer episodes every week uh, as bonuses but I still think that's pretty great. And I've got some fantastic guests already recorded and some amazing ones lined up as well. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the podcast, please be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. Give us a five-star rating and a lovely little review. I would love for you to, in your review, just let me know what you think that Bill Murray says to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. Maybe what I'll do is, when we finally come to covering that film, I will just read out all of them. We'll make it a really fucking long episode if you guys leave me lots and lots of reviews letting me know. But I think that would be a lot of fun. So as always, I've been Petros Patsilovas, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. And remember to keep it caged in and I'll catch you next time. 
It's more than a podcast network. It's family. 